You're listening to the Big Data Beard. Welcome to the Big Data Beard podcast, where we explore exciting trends, technology evolutions, and the talented people making big data a big deal. My name is Thomas Henson, and I'm your host for today's show. I'd like to introduce you to your other guest and host, Rhett Roberts. How are you doing today? Hey, doing great. Glad to be here today. And I've got Corey Mitten across from me, and he is one of our guests today, but he's also one of the hosts. Corey, how are you doing today? I am awesome. Well, awesome. That's great. Let's get started with the show. Um, this is our epi- first episode, and so we're all really excited to be here. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to walk through some news topics, and then we're going to get on with our interview, and we're going to interview Corey Mitten today. So the first topic that I have today is from TechCrunch. It's called The Facial Recognition at Movies. So... Basically, what it is, is the article talks about how they're starting to use sensors and artificial intelligence to look at facial recognition f- to watch people while they're watching movies. Corey, how do you feel about being watched while you're watching a movie? Well, I, uh, I basically operate under the pretense that there's nobody safe from being watched at this point. And it's, uh, it's interesting because the, the whole computer vision uh, topic in space is super uh, popular right now. So I had a chance to attend a couple of the big data conferences uh, over in Europe over the last few months. And computer vision was like the top topic at the keynotes. They had some great speakers from Cambridge University and others. But I think the the reason why it's getting so much play right now is because the ability to train computers to do what we do and to learn that social interaction is like, to me, that's that next evolution of of actually taking big data from just being a reporting thing that we do or kind of a, a predictive model to actually looking at how do you how do computers interact with people, right? And how does how do we break down the walls between computer and man? And it just it's really interesting. I think for movies it, it totally makes sense. Like I don't I want movies to get more awesome. So if people can, you know, use big data and use machine learning to make you know movies more awesome for me later, go for it. Yeah, but, you know, I'll take a contrary stance. So where does privacy come in? You know, it seems a little invasive for movies. You know, you're doing every 100 movies is 16 you know, million data sources and everything like that. You know, I think it's a really cool technology. I think there's some really cool ways to apply it, security being one of them. But where is that line where, you know, you're, you might be crossing it, where movies might be, film might be something that you don't yeah, want I mean, to it's a, a Ethics are obviously, obviously a big question in anything that relates to data. I think... You know, uh, me personally, I, like I said, I, I operate in the pretense that I really don't have that much privacy anymore only because, well, I mean, most of us that are in this space kind of get it, right? <laughs> we know what little privacy we have. But um, I, I think as long as, the, as long as the output is something that is intrinsically improving the quality of life or, you know, improving the outcome of a product, I don't really get too upset about it. Um, if they were using it for, you know, malicious purposes, right, then that's that's different. But I think that you know, the legislatures are getting better at writing laws to protect, you know, consumers. Um, and I think as long as we just continue to be mindful, I think we'll be okay. I'm not too worried about Big Brother yet. Yeah, I'll say uh, the ethical implications there. Um, I mean, you're buying a ticket, right? So you're buying a ticket, so you really don't have a source, you know, a sense of privacy. I mean, yeah, you go in and it's a dark room, but, you know, from an ethical perspective, I don't mind them having, you know, sensors and, you know, watching my facial expressions doing it. The really cool thing that I like about this is the fact that, you know, it gives more tools for people that are creative. And so, you know, creative talent, you know, you've always kind of thought that, you know, that's just a skill that you have or you're kind of something you're kind of born with it. And you haven't really, we haven't really been able to put data points on it. Right. And so this gives us an opportunity. So, you know, every film that they make, they, they always make like one or two endings and then they test those out. Well, now you, they can test them out 
and have more data points to really see, you know, what we as the viewers really want to see. Right. Yeah. So that's awesome. So our next topic today for our news, um, there's an article on GPU acceleration at Datanami. And it's talking about how the GPU's acceleration is, you know, helping with big data to accelerate and be able to give us, you know, that speed. And that's one of the trends that we've seen, you know, the last two or three years is like, okay, you know, it's fine for us to be able to analyze this data, but how do we do it faster so we can make better products, make better decisions, you know, meet that time crunch that we're looking for to be able to, you know, give more information back. Right. So your, you know, your traffic apps like Waze and some of the other things are getting, getting a lot faster, but you know, we're need more horsepower. And so, you know, they're using GPU acceleration. Corey, what do you think about GPU acceleration? Do you want to see it in your data center? Do you want to see your data on it? I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's an evolution, right? We've, we started with CPUs when our, our processing needs and the types of data that we were processing dictated that CPUs were the most efficient sort of style of processing unit. Well, in the world of rich media and the world of uh, machine learning and neural nets and, and this, this, this new context of kind of analytics frameworks, GPUs are more well equipped to handle it. And I think it's, I think it's interesting. And there's a ton of fun little side projects that have happened, you know, over the last few years of stories like MIT. And then there's some government entities that were, you know, buying up PlayStations because that was the cheapest way to get a GPU and building trailers full of, you know, hacked PlayStations as a GPU acceleration farm. And I think the, um, the big vendors, obviously we know NVIDIA's, you know, they're heavily focused in it. They're the, the market share leader, at least in their claims. And I think a lot of the analysts believe it, but you know, Intel's not backing down either. Intel's making massive investments uh, in the GPU space. And if you start to look at some of the like the HPC conferences. So we had the, the, the ISC, the International Supercomputing Show, was in uh, Frankfurt, Germany just a few weeks back. And Intel had as big of a, a show there, a big of a you know, presence at that show as NVIDIA, which kind of surprised me. Um, but yeah, I think GPUs are a natural progression. I, th- I think as you start to see, you know, GPUs are cool. I also think that the, the next-gen sort of TPU processing, so things like what Google's doing with the Tensor processing units, purpose-built, right, devices for machine learning are interesting. I also think that it's it's kind of interesting that we're moving, in some cases, around machine learning away from the traditional ASIC to things like F- FPGAs. Um, for that real purpose-built, like I, I have a specific static machine learning need, uh, I think it's pretty interesting. I, I actually have a, a personal connection to this interesting little device I learned about a couple weeks ago called the Apex Pro. Have you guys seen this? No. It's, uh, so, it's, um, so I'm into cars. Right. And so I like to drive around car you know, tracks really fast. So these dudes out of Auburn came up with this, um, this machine learning algorithm that basically they understood the slip circles of a car. So like how fast a car can go around a corner. And they understand that, you know, hey, based on tire size and the weight of the car and the horsepower and the, the conditions that, you know, that slip circle changes, like how fast you can go around a corner. So one of the consummate challenges for us as like practitioners in big data is, you do it just for the the sake of doing it. It's not that interesting. But if you do it with the sake of with the vision of I want to provide real time feedback to really affect an outcome, that gets really interesting. So what these dudes did is they figured out a way to package some machine learning into a super small device that sits on the dash of your car and basically learns your car's capabilities. And then after two laps around the track, it starts giving you real time feedback on the potential of the car's speed around a corner versus your actual speed. So they have this interesting red and green sort of lighting system that, that once you figure it out, it's pretty interesting. But that's machine learning at the edge on lightweight processing units done in real time, providing real time feedback. And it was one of the most interesting use cases for 
like an accelerated small scale edge computing device, but it was totally powered by some really interesting machine learning that we're doing in their uh, in their lab. So kind of interesting. I'm a huge fan of GPUs and love to see the next generation stuff. Yeah, I think part of it is we're seeing the cost come down. Uh, right. I was exposed to them. Uh, I think it was man, maybe three or four years ago, where you know I was touring you know one of the one of the bigger supercomputing areas uh, labs actually in uh, North America, and we were looking we were looking at it and we were talking about simulation. And so what they were using is they were using GPUs to get faster simulations. And so what we're trying to do is trying to figure out a way to decide that you know with Internet of Things and all these connected devices, like how computer viruses kind of unfold and how fast they can unfold and affect, you know, all systems, you know, on a global scale. And so to do that, I mean, you have to put, I mean, you know, billions and billions of devices and all run them and, you know, have them, you know, have them interacting together. And so, you know, when I first looked at that, I was like, wow, that's really, really cool. But I mean, you know, sitting at the, I think number 36 supercomputer, you know, in the world. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of easy for them to do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to use it in big data just yet. But now, I mean, we're starting to see, you know, that price come down and we're yeah. starting to see, I mean, in the, the consumers, right? As consumers, we're, we want yeah. faster. I mean, when's the last time that you waited for a, you know, a, a photo to download from the internet? We don't even talk about that anymore. Yeah, no, you I, know, it's just you, those pictures and those funny gifts are there, right? Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I'm seeing too, that's it's, it's an interesting trend is the, you know, GPUs are, they're in the data center now more and more, right? If you look at any server manufacturers sort of available specs, most of them have GPU accelerated servers. What I find interesting is that the, a lot of the, the manufacturers that make either personal computers, you know, those kind of things, they're starting to build GPU accelerated, you know, laptops and desktops because what they're finding is these data scientists, these, you know, these developers that are writing machine learning algorithms, they want to test, right? And now, because as you said, Thomas, the cost has come down so much and the, the packageability is coming down, that's, it, it gets really interesting uh, in terms of the ability to package it down to the consumer. But the one thing that I don't think we as, you know, as IT practitioners talk about enough um, is GPUs are awesome, right, in terms of their processing capability. But one thing that I'm starting to hear at some of the large scale customers adopting them that we're, that we're interested or the, the concern is power consumption. So the power consumption of a GPU is significantly higher than your traditional CPU. And the power consumption can cause real problems for data centers. So like a lot of our, you know, a lot of our listeners and a lot of the folks that we're going to talk to over the next, you know, few months as we start to develop our content, it, these folks are going to be concerned about how do I cram as much stuff into as small a floor tile as possible? But what happens if your floor tile is no longer your limiting factor for how much capability you can put in some space? I think with GPUs, our significant limiting factor is going to be power density, which is kind of an interesting sort of data center design construct that GPU is just going to really change the way we design data centers, the way we physically build, you know, those environments. And then, you know, it's going to cause those uh, heated discussions between the you know, data center operations and the developers who want to put as much of it in one place as possible. I think it's going to be an, an interesting sort of uh, evolution. Yeah, we're definitely going to see, you know, how we can do more with less. Like that's a, that's kind of been our trend. <laughs> yeah. Brett, what, what do you think about GPUs? Yeah, on this? no, I, I think, it, you know, just what based on what society, where society is going, the demands of the users, GPUs is definitely the, the way forward, the evolution, as Corey said. So it's definitely, uh, you know, coming more and more every day, every year. Uh, and it's, it's definitely where we're going to go. All right, so that's it for our news topics for today. Now let's roll into our first interview. So this is episode one, and we're going to interview one of our co-hosts, but he's actually going to be our guest today. 
So right now, I'd like to reintroduce Corey Mitten. Corey Mitten with his awesome beard. How about you join us in the lounge? <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah, so uh, it's exciting to be here. Uh, Nashville, Tennessee, awfully nice place. I want to say thanks to the uh, to our friends at uh, Data Blue for having us out to their beautiful office in Brentwood, Tennessee. Uh, however, you know I'm from Birmingham and uh, used to this hot steaminess, but I'm uh, pretty much over summer at this point. Every time I get out of the car, my glasses fog up, and I'm kind of over it. So, Corey, why don't you tell our listeners what you do in the big data space? Like, what's your role? Kind of, yeah. what's your background? What do you what do you do on a daily basis? Yeah. So, great questions. Um, so, my job title is I am the global go-to-market leader for data analytics uh, at Dell EMC. Uh, that's a kind of a mouthful. Basically, it means that uh, as we, uh, Dell EMC as a company, builds broad solutions that incorporate uh, products from across our portfolio. Uh, and as you know, Dell and EMC came together uh, in the last year uh, to create the largest portfolio in enterprise IT uh, providers. Well, we are building uh, these things we refer to as ready solutions. And ready solutions are really where we package, again, that best of breed portfolio from compute, network, and storage. And we put those together in a logical fashion to meet some specific workload need. And the workload that I'm responsible for in terms of you know, our go-to-market is data analytics. So I uh, interface a lot with our, uh, with our field sales teams and our field uh, engineering teams uh, and our customers to talk about what, is, you know, what do they desire uh, from an infrastructure provider as it relates to big data. And I take a lot of that feedback back to our, uh, to our engineering and our product teams to make sure that we're evolving uh, those data analytics offerings and products to meet those needs. And when we do have a, a specific offering for, say, Cloudera uh, or Hortonworks uh, or Splunk, then it's my responsibility to help take uh, those great engineered and validated solutions out to the market and help explain what they are. So they, uh, they let me be the one to get on stage from time to time at, at some of the big conferences we sponsor. And, uh, and I get an opportunity to, to train a bunch of our field teams on how to best use the outputs of this uh, really cool engineering group called Ready Solutions. That sounds great. Uh, I want to dig into that a little bit more, but first I've got to ask a question. I think you get this question all the time, but so what's the deal with the big data beards? Yeah. So, uh, beards are, uh, you know, they're really in vogue right now. I get it. Um, maybe passe, who knows? Uh, I think I had a beard before they were cool. I hope at least, um, maybe I was on trend. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, so I, so I have a beard, uh, obviously, and, uh, I am into big data. And uh, one thing you also will find out about me is I'm not all that creative. Uh, so I was looking for a, a domain and uh, a name for a blog that I was trying to launch uh, about three or four years ago and uh, looked on GoDaddy.com and found that Big Data Beard was uh, not taken. So I took it. And uh, subsequently, I fig figured out that it was actually a pretty nice insurance policy that if my wife wanted to uh, try to talk me into shaving, which she hasn't, it's lovely. But if she did, then I now have the plausible excuse that, well, honey, this is uh, this is part of, of who I am in my professional life, so it really can't be shaving this uh, this face forest. So yeah, that's what it's all about, man. I like uh, like having a beard, and I uh, like having an excuse to continue to have one. Awesome. I was kind of wondering because you know I've had a I've had a beard probably since I was in high school, off and on, and kind of going back and forth. And you know I've only been in big data for about four years, but I mean like the beard has really helped me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know it's one of those credibility things. We actually have some. Uh, so the Big Data Beard, uh, you know, for those that don't know, it, you know, started out as a podcast, or excuse me, a, a, a blog for me. Uh, and then what I realized was there was a number of, of smart engineers from, you know, across Dell EMC that were, that were doing interesting work in the, in the anal analytics and big data space. Um, 
And one of the things about engineers is that, that if you find that, that, that strange engineer who happens to be also sort of creative and articulate and can write and, and, and kind of produce that stuff, sometimes it's not as easy to get, you know, a following for yourself, right? So if you're an individual and you, you're trying to write a blog and trying to get folks to, you know, check it out and read it and see if your, you know, your content's good or not, it, it's tough. So um, about a year into to kind of running the Big Data Beard thing, we decided that, or I decided that, hey, I want to open this up and make it kind of a mashup side of invite other people to contribute, you know, to the blog. And, and over the last, uh, two and a half, three years, really it's become a, it's a, it's a place where a bunch of different folks are contributing content. It's not one person and no, it's not a requirement that you have a beard. We do have, <coughs> excuse me, a handful of members who are uh, beardless, which is okay. We don't judge. Uh, we encourage, we don't judge. Um, so we, uh, so we've now started the next evolution, which is, uh, which is this, right? We want to continue to engage folks, uh, in meaningful ways, provide more content. And the goal is, yeah, a lot of us work at Dell EMC, uh, but we aim to be really open, honest community members in this space and to provide some insights. And so I think it's, I think it's going to be a fun platform. It's been good so far. We're continuing to, uh, to have a lot of good interaction there and our, our visits are up and we look forward to having more. So just to summarize, I mean, beard, not a requirement, but highly encouraged. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> One of the things that I want to kind of dig into a little bit. Um, so, you know, you and I have known each other for, you know, a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things that I, you know, remember talking to you about was uh, Splunk. And so when I first okay. came in, you know, even before I started really looking at Splunk, you know, I've been in data analytics and been in Hadoop, but I hadn't really looked much at Splunk. So can you talk a little bit about Splunk for some of our listeners that, you know, maybe you've done, you know, in the Hadoop ecosystem, yep. in the Hadoop space, and tell us, you know, kind of where that crossover is with Splunk and why Splunk's so interesting for data analytics? Yeah, so so Splunk's a, a, an interesting commercial, com you know, software company. Um it's, it surprises a lot of people when they start to look at Splunk just at a, at a company level before we get into the tech. So at a company level, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize how big they were and how fast they were growing. So, uh, you know, I, I attended my first uh, Splunk user conference uh, four years ago. And at the time, they were, you know, around a $350, $400 million company. And this year, they're over a billion dollars in revenue. So you take, you take a look at the companies that are competing in this big data space and the you know, commercial side. They're enormous, right? So that's the, the company side. It surprised me. And when you get to a billion dollars, that means you have a lot of resources, a lot of, you know, support and engineering and sales. So that's kind of interesting. But the real reason, like the main reason why I started getting into Splunk um, was based on my customer demand. So interacting with our customers in the field, I started finding out that more and more customers were adopting Splunk for some pretty specific use cases. Um, and it wasn't as much of like a, I'm coming up with a, a cool differentiated development idea where I'm going to really change our business model or create a new revenue stream. Splunk really is pretty focused on attack, attacking the machine generated data uh, part of analytics. So there's a ton of data being created by every connected device that we are producing, right? Every, if you're in the data center, every single thing that plugs into power is creating a log of some sort. And that log is generally textual, you know, text data, that can be challenging for traditional database analytics to handle. Now, there's plenty of log aggregation tools, but I think what Splunk started to do and why their, their market penetration, why people are adopting so high is that they make it super simple to get data into Splunk. And then they have some really well-defined use cases that they've built out of the box applications that don't take a ton of development time and that IT practitioners can start to do what is ostensibly big data, right? High velocity, high volume, high variety data but without a lot of that development effort, right? They can pay a premium for a software application that out of the box does some interesting stuff. So I think it's Splunk has is, is, is been 
adoption, their adoption is going up because of those defined use cases. And the use cases we see most commonly are things like IT operations analytics and, frankly, enterprise security. So if you think about all the threats going on and the, the fact that all of this is network connected, all these devices at the endpoints but also in the network, they're all creating logs. And if we can do a better job of finding those those threats and stopping them, then we have a chance to protect companies from the liability of things like breaches uh, and data loss and uh, and even things like this you know, late, latest WannaCry attack. Yeah, that's awesome. And do you have any cool use cases or favorite stories about what customers are doing with Splunk? Yeah, I, I, I'm a big fan of, uh, obviously, any anytime uh, we can take IT projects or, or things in the analytics space and we can actually affect what I think is you know, human progress, right, really impactful things that are making people's lives better. I like it. So there's, there's an interesting company that's a partner of Splunk's. Um, they're actually kind of split between based in the UK and Australia called Converging Data. And Converging Data, I think the interesting thing they've done, and it's one of my favorite tools or favorite things I've seen lately is they've taken Splunk as the, the analytics platform, right? So Splunk Enterprise is their data ingestion framework. It also provides a ton of the search capability. But on top of that, Splunk offers a toolkit called IT Service Intelligence. And IT service intelligence really is an out-of-the-box capability to use uh, some machine learning algorithms and some inter interesting interfaces where you can actually take real-time analytics and build those on top of visuals that are logical. So if you think about any data center manager, they've got a picture of their you know, data center floor and it's on the wall somewhere on some giant, you know, Visio that's a 30 by 30, you know, print. We've all seen those in data center offices, our offices, right? Well, Imagine being able to do that in real time, having a picture like that, that Visio, that instead of just being a static drawing, it was actually overlaid with real-time metrics of what was going on in your data center and going on in the, the applications that that data center stuff is running. Well, Converging Data took that and applied it specifically to healthcare. So what they're trying to do is basically take the, the flow of, of humans through a, a hospital and improve the, the time from triage to treatment for hospital systems so that we can improve the quality of care. And they're using Splunk at all the different places where you imagine you're, you're checking in at the, the desk for triage to the point of, you know, the doctors entering notes, right? All these things get time stamped and we can start to measure. And if we start to see bottlenecks in different places in real time, we can start to make decisions about staffing choices, about, you know, investments and resources in those areas. And so they've got a number of really interesting use cases where they've helped hospitals take you know, that time from triage to treatment down in double digit percentages that just, I mean, that's, that's helping people potentially save lives. And I think, you know, I always have a hard time. Like, you know, we, we joke, like, well, we're not saving lives here in IT, but, but we, we candidly, our stuff can. And that to me is a, one of the most exciting areas where we use, you know, IT and, and analytics to, to save lives. Yeah, I think the, the human progress stories are always the best and the ones that hit close to home. Those are uh, always the fun ones to, to hear and talk about more. Yeah, so, I mean, I remember talking to you, and I think you had told me that, you know, look at Splunk, kind of look at it. It's like mm -hmm. the easy button for data analytics. And so one of the things that, you know, when I started looking at it, I was like, man, this stuff's really awesome. And, you know, as a developer, I was kind of like, wow, this could have saved me a lot of time and maybe some projects that, you know, I got in, got me into the data analytics space. I probably wouldn't have been as involved just because of the fact that, I mean, yeah. with, with Splunk, you come in, you bring your data in, but you can start visualizing it fast. And that's, yeah. you know, that's a key component that we see on the Hadoop side. And we've, you know, the ecosystem's kind of pushed and we're starting to have more of those analytic tools. But I mean, day one, I mean, within the first hour of setting up Splunk, I mean, you can, you walk through and you can start, you know, having your charts and pulling, pulling some of your data. So yeah, it's a really, really cool tool, really, really awesome software to continue to watch. Yeah. I think it's one of those that, you know, as we, 
as we as practitioners start to look at this and say, what, what's the fastest path to me solving a problem? Some of the problems that will be presented in our, in our analytics context will be problems that are well-defined that other people are doing that are more what I'll call commodity use cases like security, like IT ops. I think those are great opportunities to leverage packaged commercial platforms like Splunk. And there's others out there. Splunk's not the other, but, but there, I think it's a great opportunity when you look at why would I use a commercial product versus an open source or something like that that I'm going to develop. I think it's really about use case, right? So Splunk, great in those, com- those defined commodity use cases. But I don't think it changes the world around, you know, Hadoop and the big data sort of ecosystem of tools that you absolutely have to have that ability to do some additional development because there are those snowflake use cases, right? Computer vision is one that's, uh, that's interesting. I think computer vision is one of those that you're not going to ever see Splunk do that because Splunk isn't, isn't designed to deal with that rich, you know, video content. It's designed for text data. So again, it's when you start to think about which tools for the right thing, it's about use case and about what do you get for the for the money that you know, or the time or the resources you're going to spend. But yeah, I think it's it's interesting and frankly for you know for IT folks uh, you know that are in the data center side or they're they're you know folks that are selling you know IT services or equipment, Splunk uses an absolute ton of infrastructure as it grows. So servers and network and storage, it can be a very large consumer, oftentimes much larger than. Uh, your traditional like SAP or Oracle apps, uh, and so it's a it's a real opportunity for you know IT providers to start to understand a new platform that can frankly drive a bunch of consumption. Yeah, and like I said, you know, with Splunk and the ability to bring your data in, it's really really awesome tool. Um, another thing I kind of wanted to come back on is uh, talking about uh, your role as Ready Solutions. Mm-hmm. You were saying that you take feedback. And desires from the customers, and you kind of put those, you know, put those into some packages and some things that we can kind of push out. So we talked a little bit in the show earlier about GPU, but are the are there any other trends that you're starting to see in the data center, and kind of what's that feedback, and what's kind of driving those new trends? Yeah, so so obviously GPUs are a big one. Um, another one we're seeing that I actually saw a lot of the uh, at a lot of the conferences this year, and it wasn't just it wasn't just us talking about it, but it was actually a lot of the um, the vendors like uh, the cloud providers like Google Cloud and Azure and others. And they're talking about this trend of um, ephemeral clusters uh, to, uh, to long-standing clusters. So traditionally when we built, you know, when organizations were first starting in their Hadoop journey, they oftentimes built one large-scale Hadoop cluster and it, and it was their long-lasting, always-on Hadoop cluster that everything was being developed against, right? Well, now what we're starting to see is as those processing uh, platforms changed from being purely map reduced to, you know, Spark took off for a while. Now we're starting to see things like Flink and, and others that are more streaming focused uh, get more popular. We're starting to see organizations wanting to build multiple clusters where they want the data to be persistent in a long st- long-standing cluster, right? So they're trying to decouple a bit the storage from potentially the processing framework because what they want to do is they want to be able to flexibly spin up new clusters specific and dedicated for one processing framework or the other, but not have to pick up and move the data. Because, you know, the first the first thing we know about big data is if it truly is big data, it's likely big. And moving data does have physical limitations on network speed and drive speed on how fast you can move data between devices. So the fewer times we can move the data to meet a new processing need, the better. So one of the things we're starting to see is the that 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 concept of having longstanding you know, storage-centric clusters to ephemeral processing clusters is very popular. And one of the things you need to do that is that decoupling of compute from storage, potentially. There's a lot of opportunity there. Um, and they're also seeing that the, the management and orchestration stack is getting more and more important. 
So if I'm going to have um, ephemeral clusters spun up uh, in a short time that are that are going to go alongside long-standing clusters, uh, things like you know natively with traditional apps, virtualization seemed really interesting. But we're also seeing containerization uh, being really popular, and a lot of the containerization tools uh, and, and and orchestration tools, whether you're into Docker, you know Kubernetes, Mesos, whatever, th they're getting popular in the big data space because now I have this concept of I can keep the data for a long time. I can have it stored in, you know, in this storage or this this more traditional Hadoop cluster. And then if I want to spin up a small one quickly, it doesn't take the physical time to go build a physical cluster. So we're seeing companies like, um, you know, Blue Data is getting pretty interesting. They offer, a, you know, a containerization service and an MNO stack that makes it super simple for companies to spin up, um, you know, as a service uh, clusters and provide a portal for business users to say, hey, I want to. I want to spin up a Flink cluster. I want to spin up a 20 node, you know, Splunk indexer environment real quickly. And it does it in a, in a really interesting and simple fashion. So the big trends are uh, decoupling compute from storage, uh, a trend towards improved MNO, uh, management orchestration stacks to allow us to meet the need of uh, both longstanding sort of uh, persistent clusters with that need for persistent, flexible ephemeral cluster uh, from an infrastructure perspective. Yeah, I have to agree. I've never walked in and talked with a customer or another developer who's like, man, I absolutely love data migrations. How can I do more? <laughs> and so, you know, I really, we really start to see that. And I see, you know, with HD, HDFS Federation and some other pieces where you want to be able to analyze data where it exists. So, I mean, not all of our data, I mean, whether it be big data, small data, all your data needs to come back and you need to have a way to analyze that data. And so you want to be able to analyze it where it persists, right? If it's, yeah. in, if it's in the cloud, you want to be able to do it there. You want to be able to do it in your core data center and then also pull that data out at the edge. So, you know, I definitely see that trends a lot and anything that can get out of data migrations, I think people will love us for. Yeah, I mean, HDFS is a file system at the end of the day, right? So it was a file system that was designed for analytics purposes. So it was designed to handle large scale processing of data, storing large data sets that were diverse. But at the end of the day, it is still a file system. And, it's, and I think the interesting evolution is that's driving now is that it's the enterprise adoption of HDFS. So a lot of the early uh, decisions that were made in HDFS design where um, security and things like federation between multiple namespaces, uh, data protection, some of those things were were less important because the, the goal of that file system was purely processing. But now because of the adoption of Hadoop and the processing frameworks in that ecosystem are now being used to drive critical applications, critical revenue streams, critical projects for large-scale enterprise customers, they're asking HDFS to be more enterprise class. And so I think things like that federation, I think you know the data protection capabilities, the ability to do traditional backups and recovery of a large-scale file system are becoming more and more important. And I think it's great to see the open source communities responding and the, you know, the commercial providers like Cloudera and Hortonworks are really investing heavily in offering those richer data services uh, to, uh, to make Hadoop actually more relevant to more enterprises. So changing gears a little bit, can you tell us a little bit more? I saw on Twitter where you were at the uh, Barber Motor Speedway, and I, I think that's where you were talking a little bit about the APX or the Apex uh, programming. Yeah. Tell us, I mean, how you got to get in a race car and uh, <laughs> do some machine learning. I mean, and how do I sign up for that? Yeah, so uh, so interestingly enough, you, you'd be amazed how easy it is. Um, so I I have a passion for uh, for anything that burns gasoline, prefer V8s. Uh, but I'll, I'll take anything really. Uh, so I, I've always, I grew up a gearhead or a petrol head if you're in the, you know, in the UK. Um, but, uh, I have a big passion for it. So, uh, a couple of years ago, I have, I have small children. And if any of your dads, you probably know that a, a dad can only have so many hobbies that don't include, 
uh, his family, right? And so I'm not a golfer. It's never been my thing. I'm actually quite terrible at it. Um, please, please don't invite me unless we're just going to go hang out. That's fine. No, I mean, um, everybody has four or five hours to burn, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So if I'm going to take a, you know, a long, if I'm going to take a Saturday, I'd rather go to a racetrack. So um, there's a number of groups around the country that, uh, that organize these events. And some of them are centric on like their car clubs and some of them are just, you know, racing clubs. So I've hooked up with um, a group called Chen Motorsports that Basically, what they do is they get geeks like me who are into cars, uh, and they pool our resources. And basically, for a weekend, you can pay, you know, a fee, and you can go out with, you know, seventy or eighty other people like you and go drive on some of these beautiful tracks. And Barber Motorsports Park happens to be one of only two uh, F1 certified courses in the U.S. So we run at, you know, down in Austin at Circuit of the Americas. That's the F1 event we have, but Barber's actually a certified course as well. Uh, and that's because of distance and elevation change and turns and stuff. But anyway, so I'm a super big gearhead. I, I have a Pontiac G8, uh, which is, uh, it's a big four door saloon or sedan. Uh, but it's a, uh, but it's actually the same car. It's actually built in Australia by a company called Holden. And in Australia, they have these cars called uh, Australian V8 supercars. And that's like their racing series. And so I'm actually building that car to the same specs. Uh, as those uh, those V8 supercars. So this past weekend, all the uh, all the carpet and soft materials came out, speakers came out, and uh, the roll cage is uh, getting ready to be installed. So I try to get out about once a month and uh, go rip it around the track because driving like a jerk, driving fast on the road is not generally acceptable. Let's be honest. How fast did you actually go? Yeah, so everybody asks that. That's the first question folks ask. Uh, I'll tell you in the straightaways. Um, I think I got to on that one probably 110 right around it, which is not that. You know, it's not crazy. Uh, Bar- uh, Barber's not a not considered a really really high speed sweeping corners track. It's a bit more technical. Uh, I think what what you would find, and, and I'd invite you if you guys want to come out and hang out with me, I'll I'll totally strap you in the uh, the five point harness in the passenger seat. Uh, but what's surprising is how fast you go around corners. Um, you know, you're doing 110 in the straightaway. And when you come into that first turn, you're shedding speed, but you're still doing 75, 80 miles an hour through a turn. And I think that's what puts people over the edge. It's not the, it's not a drag race. It's not a long straightaway. It's the fact that you're going through turns at an incredibly high rate of speed, actually so fast and so hard that, um, my car after the time at the track, you see all these big black, uh, marks on it. And it's actually where rubber is literally being ripped off of the tire of the tires of the cars in front of me. And it looks like they're going on a gravel road, like rocks are coming up. No, it's literally, it's literally rubber being melted off these tires and thrown at the car behind them. So it's pretty fun. So yeah, come on and ride with me sometime. No, it sounds great. I'll bring my uh, four cylinder Honda Accord and hope <laughs> that you don't run me off the road. <laughs> hey man, Miata's run out there too. <laughs> well, Corey, thanks for coming on the show. Um, welcome to the big data podcast. Thank so you. you will be, you know, a host, and you're one of our guests too, and our first guest. Um, so, one of the things that we like to do um, when we're ending the show is we want to do a rapid fire question. And so, these questions are meant just to be, you know, first thing that comes to your head. Sure. Let's kind of run through them. Um, so, the first one is probably one of my favorite questions that yeah. I ask a lot of people: Is what year do you think Skynet will go online? So, all this AI and all these things, when are the machines going to turn against us? So I think Skynet's probably already online. I think the machines turning against us is probably a good 30 to 40 years out. I think Skynet, it's uh, it's learning right now. We're in the model training session at this point. We haven't turned to uh, putting the uh, the learning back out at the edge yet, but it's I have a feeling it's already here. It's awesome. in test dev. <laughs> so thanks for listening, Skynet. Our next one question, rapid fire here. If you bought me a book, what would it be? 
Well, one of the most interesting uh, books I've read recently is the uh, the Innovators by Walter Isaacson. Um, really interesting story about the 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 way that computers and the internet have have really fostered the next industrial revolution. Um, and Walter Isaacson, if you don't know, is one of the I think one of the premier biographers of our time. Um, and he just he did an amazing job with the innovators, and it really covers from you know from Turing to Gates and and Jobs to you know a, a bunch in between on on what happened in the uh, kind of the wartime computer development. So really interesting book. I think it's great for anybody in tech. It's a it's an absolute must read. What genre of music are you rocking right now? Man, I'm an Americana guy through and through. So I'm a huge fan of the Avett Brothers and. Uh, and a bunch of bands like that, but I also I have a tendency to uh, I'm trying to be on trend with the cool developers I go hang out with, and I've I've been to a handful of uh, these you know, development and design labs lately, and it seems like you know during the day everybody's got their headphones on and I don't know what they're listening to, but if you stick around till like after five, all these places have pretty good sound systems, and it seems like most of them are into like trap music, so that deep beats, that Atlanta kind of rap. It's uh, for some reason it's brilliant for when I'm trying to be creative. What is your favorite piece of useless tech? I think smartwatches are uh, utterly <laughs> useless. I, 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 uh, so I, I so I was an early adopter of the Pebble, uh, and it was it was neat, uh, but it really it, it it just kind of annoyed me. And I have I have fought the urge, although I'm a big fan of the uh, the iOS devices. I've fought the urge to buy the Apple Watch only because uh, I've kind of conducted interviews with people, and most of them are like. It's kind of a toy. So I think that's generally, they're useless. Yeah, but you look cool doing it. <laughs> so what's your biggest money pit right now? My car. I, the, the race car is, uh, it is it is a money pit. It is not, I think golfing would probably be cheaper, <laughs> uh, but, but, it's, uh, but it's really fun. And, and the, the best part is my kids love it. So even though it's, it's been turned into a, a pretty much a full-time track car, it is street legal, and I still have two car seats in the back. And uh, my kids are, are five and three, and they always ask if they can ride in daddy's fast car. And I get a lot of woohoos whenever I go around a corner a little faster than they would in their mama's expedition. What show are you binging on right now? Man, I'm catching up on uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, so obviously a hilarious show if you're into this space. I, I I didn't watch it for the first couple of seasons that it was out. I just, for whatever reason, it wasn't on my radar. And then uh, about six, nine months ago, I sort of got into it and uh, watched the first season took a break and then i've over the last two three weeks i've been uh, binging trying to get caught up so here at the uh, big data beard podcast show we we all have beards or we all like beards not a requirement yep. so but we want to know who your beard idol is it yourself <laughs> <laughs> no that would be pretty vain uh no my uh which i have been con uh, called that before i apologize no my my beard idol would be uh uh a guy named jimmy niggles uh he's uh, an australian bloke uh, and I think his, his Instagram, uh, tag or, um, or handle is, uh, the million dollar beard. And he's, he's kind of a cool story. So he's, he won, he has this, this absolutely brilliant beard, uh, which is one, but the reason he grew it was, uh, he had a, a good friend that was a, a surfer an Australia, professional surfer that died from melanoma. And so he started this trend they call beard season. And the, the, basically the thing is, is that they grow beards and he encourages other people to grow beards. And when people ask them about their beard, they say, why are you growing a beard? And it's like, well, I'm growing a beard so I can have this conversation with you. Go get your skin checked. I had, a, you know, had this person who <clears throat> was a friend, died from melanoma. It could have been caught because it was the kind of melanoma that if he caught it early, they could have taken it off. But it killed him because he didn't go get his skin checked. So I think anything that, again, I like tech if it powers human progress. 
but I also like beards when they power human progress. And that's probably my favorite uh, human progress beard story is the dude's literally out there trying to create a movement where when you have a beard and you talk about it, you try to encourage folks to, uh, to go get themselves checked out from a skin perspective. And I actually had the, my sister uh, just recently had uh, some pretty serious uh, skin cancer removed from her head. And I'd like to claim that it was because I tried to encourage her to it and I feel bad that it wasn't, but I'm certainly going to be doing that more in the future. And then our listeners want to connect with you, want to see where you're going. Yeah. You going anywhere interesting here in the next few weeks? Yeah, uh, I've uh, I've had the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time in Europe this year, and uh, I'm actually going back in uh, just a few weeks uh, to a new country. So I've actually never been to uh, Austria. So we're having a big, uh, there's a big internal training uh, session going on for all the engineers from Dell EMC uh, in, in Europe and across Middle East and Africa. They're going to be convening in Vienna. And so I'll get to spend a, a few days in Vienna. So I'm pretty excited about that. And then outside of that, I think the next cool place we're going is potentially a combo trip of uh, Hawaii and uh, Australia. Well, awesome. Maybe I can catch up with you in Hawaii or Australia, <laughs> time permitting, or some of our listeners uh, can find you there. Excellent. So that's all we have today for the Big Data Beard podcast. I want to remind everyone to find us on social media. So find us on Twitter. You can find us at bigdatabeard.com. You can go to the show notes, find out some of the recommendations that we answered in the rapid fire and some of the other useful tips and tricks that we've talked about in this podcast. Make sure that you subscribe to us. So subscribe to, to us so you never miss an episode. And then also go back and like us, you know, tell us, tell us your feedback. And as you like, and as you comment on our uh, Big Data Beard podcast, we'll actually read those on the air for you. So thanks again. And I'll see you guys next time on the Big Data Beard podcast.